but take out the Word of God and turn to 1 Samuel. Uh, we're actually going to look at ver- chap- a lot of chapter, all of chapter 13 and much of chapter 14 today. Um, we, our pattern is that we go verse by verse. Uh, we dig into every verse and uh, unpack every verse. Today I will summarize some verses that are just straightforward uh, for time's sake. Uh, but we will look at all of chapter 13 and then uh, most of chapter 14 today. To begin our time together, I'm going to read uh, chapter 14, uh, verses 6 through 7. If you would stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Hear the word of Christ. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And the armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Oh God, we... Thank you for Christ who fights for us. And God, today I pray that we would uh, say to him, do all that is in your heart. God, do all that is in your plan and purposes for us in Christ. And may we say to Christ today, we are with him heart and soul. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. She can fight her own battles. She got herself into this, and she can get herself out. I heard these words over the phone uh, from a man I'd called after a baseball game. I was coaching baseball, and I was coaching this young man how to stand at the plate and uh, what to do in a certain situation, and I heard in the background a mom yelling. And at first, I didn't realize she was yelling at me. And so I just continued to instruct her son how to stand and what to do and what we were trying to do in that moment. And and she just kept yelling at me, that's not right. No, don't do that. Yelling through the fence. And I thought, surely to goodness, this is not a mother who is overcoaching me in this moment. And so I ignored her and it just kept going on the whole game. She just kept yelling through the fence, and any time her son would be doing something, she would, she would overcoach or overyell what I was telling him to do, and this went on throughout the whole game until finally I, I just had enough, and I, I, I turned to her and said, I got this, okay? Now, I thought that would calm her down, and she would go back to the bleachers and sit down and relax, and that's not at all what she did. I I thought in those moments she was going to eat through the fence (laughs) and come at me. And parents were hearing this and seeing this, and her son was so embarrassed, and other players were embarrassed, and I thought, I'm not going to say anything else. Uh, I'm not going to talk to her after the game. That's not going to be good. I, I said, the best move for me would be to call her husband later on tonight and just sort of talk to him about this and 
um, she was married, wasn't a single mom or anything, and so they, they seemed to have a, a good relationship with her husband. He's a great guy, and uh, I called him up, and I began the conversation, and before I could get a sentence out, he said, she can fight her own battles. She got herself into this, she can get herself out, and he just went over and handed her the phone. And she very calmly said, I'm so sorry, I shouldn't have done that. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> we never worked it out. Uh, and partly because her husband said she can fight her own battles. She got herself into this, she can get herself out. And there are a lot of men who do that. A lot of men who push women to the front of the battle, their wives in that way. Uh, that's probably the most severe I've ever seen it in, in my relationships when we get to chapter 13, that's not what God says to Israel. He doesn't say to his people, you got yourself into this. You chose Saul to be your king. You wanted a king like the other nations. You, you wanted a, t a king you could put on your billboards. You wanted a king who, who looked good and can go fight battles and sort of be this figurehead, this logo for you. And you got him. And you got yourself into this. But when we get to chapter 13 and 14, we see God isn't making them fight their own battles, which is what he should do. You want this king? You let him fight the Philistines. See how he can do without me, because I'm your king. I'm the one who's supposed to be fighting your battles. Let's push Saul to the front of the line. And that's not at all what he does here. Notice verse 1 of chapter 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And he reigned for two years over Israel. There seems to be a, a time between the anointing of Samuel and, until Saul is officially put in charge. There, there, this is summarized here. And he's reigned for two years over Israel. In verse 2, he chooses 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And we see some time has passed in Saul's life. He has a son now. And we're going to see Jonathan is his right-hand man. He is the one leading the battles for Saul. And, but notice here, Saul has 2,000 men. Jonathan has 1,000 men. But notice what else Saul is doing. He is making sure he has more soldiers than even Jonathan, but he also does this. The rest of the people he sent home, and every man to his tent. Saul is being passive here. He's protecting himself, and then he's being passive. But notice verse 3. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And we see this issue of Philistines in First and Second Samuel. And here at this point, the Philistines, they're still a problem. They have invaded the land. Israel has a new king. Things seem to be changing. But the Philistines are still in the land. They have a garrison. They have this fortress of foreign troops. And who is the one who goes after them? It is not Saul. It is his son Jonathan, even with less warriors. He begins to deal with the problem. And notice, he defeats them. 
And the Philistines heard of it. The rest of the armies of the Philistines, they begin to hear of it. And notice what Saul does. He blows a trumpet through all the land saying, let the Hebrews hear. Let our people hear. Let the Jews hear. And verse 4, Israel heard it and said, notice what they say, Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. It's Jonathan who has fought the enemies. It's Jonathan who said, I'm going to go fight the battle. But notice who is getting credit here, Saul. And it's a picture of what Israel has chosen, that they wanted a figurehead. They wanted a king to stand up in front. They were jealous of all the other nations. They've got these warrior kings who are fighting battles for them. Who do we have? Oh, we just have God. You can't even see him. We've got this tent. We've got this box. No, we want a man in front of us. Okay, you've got your man. And he's being passive. He's protecting himself. He's making sure he has all the troops. But his son Jonathan defeats the troops with less, less power. And, and yet, notice Saul still takes the credit. This is what you wanted. And this is what you got, Israel. And here, as we, we see Saul taking the credit, it's a warning of the thought in our own life. That, that sometimes when it's our name on the line, we, we believe we're the one who has the power. We believe that we're the one who is in control. That's exactly what Israel is seeing in Saul. That's exactly what Saul is thinking of himself. Your name is on the check. Your name is on the mortgage. Your name is on the loan. Your name is on the degree. And so often in our lives, we think because it's our name in lights, it's our name that is out there, that we're the one in control. And yet Saul, his name is in lights. He's on the front page of the newspaper. Saul always wins. He's got his sword and he's smiling as this great king. But we're seeing he's not even the one fighting the battles. He's not the one in control. And this is a lesson that God is proving to Israel. And it's a lesson that God is proving in your life right now. Your name's on the check. But how often do you worry about your money? Are you really in control? Your name's on the degree. But how often do you not get the job that you wanted? Are you really in control? Are you really the one who is making things happen? And we're to stop and say, no, just because it's our name doesn't mean we're king. And that's the point that God is proving to Israel here. Notice as the text continues in verses 4 and 8, what happens in this section is the Philistines, they rise up and, and they hear of Israel. Oh, they, they picked this fight over in the hill country. Let's go after them. And, and Israel, by the thousands, be, or, or the Philistines, by the thousands, begin to invade the land. And, and in this section, there is a phrase used to describe the Philistines. It says, they were like the sand of the seashore in multitude. Now, where have we heard that term before? It's used of Israel. Abraham, the promise is that his descendants would be like the sand of the sea. There would be so many of them, you wouldn't even be able to count. And yet that terminology is used of the enemy here. And Israel, who has the promise, they're the ones in this section 
that begin to flee. They begin to hide in caves. They begin to cry out for Saul. Where are you? You are our king. You're supposed to save us. They have the promise, but it is the Philistines who are acting like they are the ones with the promise. And then we get down to verse 9. Notice what Saul does. There's chaos in the land. Things seem to be out of control. People are wanting him to fight. So what does he do? He says, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, remember a few chapters ago, Saul doesn't even understand what these things are. People tell him when Samuel first finds him, oh, they're having a worship service and they're making these offerings. And he's like, uh, oh, yeah, but where's the prophet? I, I don't understand what's going on. But now all of a sudden he's a religious expert. We're supposed to go into battle? Oh, yeah, let's do that thing we're supposed to do when we go into battle. Let's worship. Bring the burnt offering. Bring the peace offering. And the burnt offering, it was an offering that symbolized God was with them, that sin had been paid for and God has accepted them. And the peace offering was offered to celebrate fellowship. The uniting of the people around the sacrifice of God. God was with them and they were together. And and notice verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him. It's as if he knows he hasn't done right. Oh, Samuel's back in town? Oh, I I need to meet him out front before he gets here. In verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done Samuel's like the parent who's been on vacation, comes back, hears about the kids throwing a party. What what have you done, Saul? You have totally messed everything up. This isn't something you were supposed to be doing. And notice Saul's excuse. When I saw the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the day's appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michash, he said... Now the Philistines will come against me and at Gilgal, and I have, I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I noticed, forced myself and offered the burnt offering. What is, what is his excuse here? Samuel, do you really understand what's going on around here? We're at war. And, and everybody was leaving me. I was at home in Gilgal alone and defenseless. By the way, Samuel, where were you? You're the prophet. You were supposed to be with me. Samuel, I was scared. And I needed God. And so what do we do when we need God? We have a burnt offering. And I needed the people of God. So what do you do when, I, when you need to have fellowship with the people of God? You have a peace offering. And notice what Saul is doing here. The the, the offerings of God, the holy offerings of God that were supposed to be performed by a priest. He has taken authority over them and he is using them like a gimmick, like a rabbit's foot. What, What else can I do? He's panicking. Oh, I need God. Let's have a worship service. That that'll help. But notice verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have been without wisdom. And notice what he accuses him of here in verse 13. You have not kept the command of the Lord which he commanded you. Remember last week, the command he's talking about here 
is even though to Israel you have a king, God's still your king. And don't forget he's your king. And to Saul, even though you're king, you always remember God is your king. You're, you're, you're just a figurehead. But what have you done here? You've taken the authority of God. And, and you are acting like you are God. You are acting like you have the authority to do these things that God hasn't given them to you. You see, Samuel was over the priesthood. And, and the priesthood was not to be involved in bloodshed. And, and, and Saul was to be over the military. But as we've seen so far, he's not even doing that. He doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing. So let's just have a worship service and then God will help us. He was to serve the people of God by serving the Lord as king. And that's not what he's doing here. And Samuel says, if you would have done this, the Lord would have established your kingdom forever over Israel. The only way to have an eternal kingdom is to be established by the eternal king who is God. In verse 14, but now your kingdom shall not continue. Now your kingdom will not continue on. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Now often we hear that phrase and we're going to hear it about King David. And we think of a man after your own heart. And we think of someone who is like God. And often we think someone who pursues God. What he means here is a man after God's own heart is a man who sees God as king. A, a, a man who is even king who says, but I'm not the ultimate king. The Lord is king. And that's not what you're doing, Saul. God is looking for a man who will submit to his authority, submit to him as king. And it would be the desires of God that would be the priority for this king. And here, what has been revealed about Saul, notice the text continues, the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And we say, why would Saul do this? Well, it's because Saul is king of Saul's heart, not the Lord. Why would Saul go get the burnt offering and the peace offering? Because he's protecting himself. He doesn't care about the people of God. He doesn't care about anyone else. He only cares about himself. And he has used the holy offerings of God as some sort of superpower vial. If we can do this, we will be safe. And he's using God. And this points us to the fact that ultimately Jesus is the only king after God's own heart. It's because Jesus is the heart of God. And how do we know it? Because Jesus is the only one who submitted to all of God's desires. Even as Jesus was facing the most horrific battle in human history, the battle between sin and death, the, the battle between life, the battle between God, the battle between good and evil, and he's marching into the battle. What does he say? Protect me. Keep me safe. No, he says, thy will be done. Whatever it means. He surrenders to the desires of God in the moment of chaos and confusion where Saul is protecting himself. And, and today you think, what does it mean to be a, a man or a woman after God's own heart? It means to be like Jesus. It means you're surrendered to the will of God no matter what it costs you. And you're not using God for your own benefit. And so you want to ask, do I want to be someone after God's own heart? Well, are you using God or are you asking to be used by God? 
How do you pray? Think about the battles in your own life now. Think about the things that you're facing right now that you say are the most difficult things that are going on. Money, marriage, friendship, whatever's going on at your job. The most difficult thing in front of you. How are you praying about that? What are you asking God to do in those moments? Are you like Saul? You're here today. You came to a worship service because you think God would fix it. And you're using God as a gimmick. Maybe if I go to church today. Maybe if I go to church today, it'll make it better. And, and you've come to use God for your own benefit. How, how are you praying? Are you asking God to just fix it? Or are you asking God to use it? Are you saying, God, fix my marriage. Fix my kids. Fix my money. Fix this sickness. Or are you praying, use my marriage? Even how, It doesn't matter how difficult it is, God. I, I would like to have better communication with my spouse. But I want you to use this for your glory. That, that's the heart of God in your marriage. That is saying, we want a marriage after God's own heart. We're surrendered to God as king, and we're asking him to use it. We're not using God for it. Oh, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do about my finances. I need a second job. We're in debt. And you're praying, God, mysteriously, Tuesday when I go out to the mailbox, may there be a $20,000 check. Or maybe you gave today. Maybe you tried to buy love today. You said, I'm going to put a little bit in the offering plate, and then it'll come back a hundredfold this week. You're using God. How about you say, even in this most difficult circumstance, I want to be used by God. That, that, that is the heart of Jesus. That's a king after God's own heart. That's a man, that's a woman after God's own heart. God, you show grace, you show hope, you show, you show your glory amidst difficulty. And, and as we see in this, the, the, the last part of this chapter, Saul's decision then renders Israel defenseless. They're defenseless before their enemies. God has removed authority, removed power from Saul, and, and so he's defenseless in so many ways in the next few chapters. In verse 15, we see Samuel leaves Saul, which is symbolic. The word of God goes in a different direction. In verse 15, we see that the troops that Saul is over, it, it moves down to 600 from 2,000. We see in verses 16 and 18, the Philistines, they begin, to, they begin to surround Israel in the hill country in every way, and they can't get out. And on top of it all, Israel has made a decision that they have no blacksmiths, so they've been taking all their metal down to the Philistines to sharpen it for them, and they have no weapons. Saul and Jonathan are the only ones who have weapons, and they're in their storage units. Israel's defenseless. And it's a picture. Saul, you thought you were king? Guess what? You've rendered the people defenseless. And I'm about to prove to you who is king. And we see the root of Saul's self-focus renders them defenseless. And it's the same thing that's going on in your life. When you face the temptation to sin, 
immorality, or you're going to lose control of your emotions. You're going to choose something that is evil and that is wicked. There's a lot of you here today that you just say, man, in those moments, I feel so defenseless. I I feel like I, I have nothing to offer the battle. Well, if you're like Saul, you're choosing yourself. You're protecting yourself at all times. When when you're called to battle, you're selfish. And you're going to choose self. That's why Satan loves the desire in our heart for self. You want a name for yourself. You want to be safe. You want to be comfortable. You fear missing out. If I don't do this, if I don't say this, if I'm not at this place, then, then I'm just nobody. And you live your life. You cultivate that in your life. You cultivate those selfish desires. So when there is a moment to to rise to the occasion, to ward off sin, to serve others, you're defenseless in that moment because you have been choosing self all the way to that moment. And you have been giving Satan your weapons You've been given Satan your heart over and over and over again. And that's a picture of what's going on in Israel. They haven't been giving the Lord their heart. They haven't been serving the Lord. Saul could care less about the Lord. He's using the Lord. And so there is a battle raging and no one is to be found with a weapon save one. Notice the text continues. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried the armor... Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. And somebody would say, Jonathan, that's what got us into this mess. You seem to be the only one around here who wants to fight. You seem to be the only one around here who cares about the enemy of God. Jonathan said, let's go attack this fortress of Philistines. But notice he did not tell his father. Saul's not even in control of this. No one in Israel has weapons. Saul doesn't want to fight, but his son Jonathan is going to battle. He's not even telling him. And so Saul, notice, stayed on the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. What is Saul doing? He's hiding. He's not running to battle. He's hiding. And at this point, we're to read the text and say, this is the king you wanted. He's tall and he's handsome. He's the big man on campus. Looks like a great quarterback, dating the cheerleaders. He's pathetic. He's hiding in a cave. And Jonathan, his son, is going to battle. Doesn't even know what's going on. And Saul was staying in this cave, but notice verse 3, who was with him? Ahijah, the son of Ahidab. I think I got that right. Ichabod's brother. But notice this, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. Do you remember those guys? They're they're the ones who were having sexual immorality in the tent of meeting. They are the ones who were stealing sacrifices from the people of God. And, And so you find Saul hidden away, but at least he's got a priest with him. Oh, he's one of those priests. Ugh. Well, what's he doing? Saul's kind of like a politician where he says, if I can get a preacher boy next to me, that means things are going to work out for me. So he's got a priest with him in a tent, but he's hiding away. He's using the priest as a gimmick here. 
He's using religion as a gimmick. And he's wearing the ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And so you would look and you would say, oh, Saul, he's got the priest. They're in a cave. The people, you know, those 600 men with Saul, they're probably having devotions every morning. They're probably seeking the Lord in Bible study. But they're doing nothing because they're scared. Who is the one running the battle? It's Jonathan. And it's one guy. It's one guy who is running to the front of the battle. And he has one man with him. He has his armor bearer with him. He's saying, all I need is my weapons. You come with me. Don't tell anyone else. Let's go destroy these uncircumcised enemies of God. Notice the text continues. They begin to crawl through the mountains. Verses 4 and 5 describe this hill country. It's a very difficult terrain. And then we get to verse 6. And Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Now, that's not just smack talk. That's reminding himself that they don't have the promise of God. The Philistines don't have God as their king. God hasn't made a promise. They don't have the sign of the promise, circumcision, to say God is their king. And so Jonathan is thinking, they can't win. God's made them no promises. Let's go destroy them. And he says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Where is his trust? He's not using the Lord. He's ready to fight for the Lord. For he says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by a few or by many. And the point here, throughout both chapters, what is Saul doing over and over? He's counting men. Oh, I got, I got 2,000 troops. Oh, I got 600 troops. Look at all the troops I got. Where are my troops? Saul over and over is worried about how many troops he has. Jonathan has one. It's his armor bearer. And he's headed to war. And notice what the armor bearer said to him. Do all that is in your heart. Remember Saul? What's in his heart? Saul. And the armor bearer hears him say, the Lord will fight for us. And so he says, now let's do what's in your heart. You're trusting the Lord is king. You are believing the Lord will fight our battle. So let's go. Let's go. Let's fight. You, you are trusting the Lord. So whatever happens, by many, by few, the Lord, if he is with us, we cannot lose. And we see here with Jonathan the, a picture of his heart. And, and the truth is what's in your heart comes out in the battle. It always does. Where your trust is comes out in the battle. What is Saul doing? He's not waiting on the Lord. He's waiting to save himself. Self-preservation. What is Jonathan doing? He's trusting in the Lord. And because he trusts in the Lord, he's willing to deny himself for the people of God. Jonathan looks around and says, if nobody else will deny themselves, I'm headed to battle. Why? Because the Lord is my king. And I trust him. And he's given us promises. So let's go fight. And this is displayed in our life over and over again. The king of your heart is displayed in the battle. Every time there's difficulty. If you're here today and you see your life as just a mission for self. Where you wake up in the morning and it is all about you. The alarm goes off. It's all about you. And you are on a mission to be successful. You're on a mission to be admired. 
You walk into the school, you walk into the office, and all you care about is people liking you or people revering you, where they say, oh, he's so cool. Oh, he's so great. If that is your mission day in and day out, and you even use Jesus when it's convenient, when it's convenient for folks to admire you, you talk about Jesus. Folks here talk about Jesus. We just sang about Jesus. We said holiness has a name and it's Jesus. We love Jesus here. And so some of you come in here and you use Jesus for your network. I'll say Jesus when it's convenient for me. But deep down you're using him for yourself. And you wake up and you use Jesus. And you use this life for self. When there is a battle, when there is tension, you will be convictionless and quiet. Because it's about you, and you will seek to save yourself. And you will not run to the battle for Jesus. You will not deny yourself for Jesus. But what is Jonathan doing here? He says, the Lord is king, and it is displayed when it's on the line. And and if your life, you wake up every morning and you say, how can I make Jesus known today? That is your mission. Why do you exist To make Jesus known. He is God's king. There is no other king. He created all things. He will end all things. And you wake up and you say, there is no more purpose in life but to make him known. And so everything I do throughout this day is for Jesus. And and Jesus isn't always convenient. There's going to be times where there is tension for following Jesus. You will have to make decisions as a leader. You will have to make decisions as a follower. You will have to make decisions as an employee, as an employer. Is is this right for Jesus' namesake? If I make this decision, if I say this, what does it say about Jesus? And when the battle's on the line, you will choose inconvenience. You will be okay with the awkwardness and uncoolness at times. You sometimes will pride yourself in not being cool. Because you look at the rest of the world and you say, That's, this is fake, plastic, artificial, just branding of everybody. I'm about Jesus and I don't care if it works with you or your plans or your agenda. And you'll step into situations and you will rise to the occasion. You will preach the gospel. You will share the gospel. At times, you will be agitating to the status quo. If there's not times in your life where you just agitate people, not because you're a jerk for Jesus, but because you love Jesus, and it just agitates people around you at times. Sometimes in counseling sessions, I tell people this. You can't work this relationship out. It's going difficult for you. You just go into that relationship. You go into that next meeting and you say, I'm so sorry. I I could have handled this better. I could have said, I shouldn't have said this. And you begin to apologize. And you begin to tell your boss that, okay, I've been a selfish punk and I I haven't done my work the way that I should. I didn't turn in the assignments. And you, for the sake of the gospel, Just start admitting your sin and flaws and you say, but I have Jesus and I'm sorry, I misrepresented Jesus. And you know what happens? Sometimes we think people are going to go, oh, okay. So often people get angry. Oh, that's not what I wanted. I just wanted you to turn in the assignment. 
Oh my, and it agitates people. But, but it's okay with you at times because you are denying yourself in the battle for the sake of Jesus. And if it's about Jesus, you're okay with agitating the status quo at times. But notice what happens here. Verses 8 through 12, what Jonathan does here, and we'll summarize, is he tells his armor bearer there's a strategy. He says, we're in the hill country, and the Philistines are on the other side. Let's go to the top of the hill, and let's start making some noise. Let's tell them we're here. The Philistines come at us. It is a sign that the Lord isn't with us. But if the Philistines say, come at us, that's God saying, go get them. And that's what happens at the top of the hill. The Philistines say, oh, little Hebrew boy and his armor bearer, come on over here. Come on over here. The text actually says, we'll show you a thing. And what does Jonathan do? Okay, that's the sign. And they begin to charge into battle. And notice verse 13. Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet. Rough terrain. He's climbed the, ba- the mountain. And his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer. They killed them after him. And the first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made. Killed 20 men within as if it were a half a furrow length of an acre. And so it's less than an acre 20 men begin to fall and they're destroyed. One man takes on 20 men with his weapons. This is like a scene out of The Patriot, if you've seen that movie. Uh, I can't remember what's in it, so I don't want to recommend it. Uh, but, but this is sneak attack. And they begin to sneak attack the enemies so that the enemies think, oh, there must be a thousand men here. Surely not just one man in his armor bearer. And, and they, they are scared. And notice verse 15, there was panic in the camp and in the field and among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled and the earth quaked and the, it became a very great panic. Notice one guy, one guy in his armor bearer, a sneak attack. 20 people go down and they're scared to death. They think there are thousands that are attacking us. Notice verse 16. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah. And this is supposed to almost be humorous. Meanwhile, back in Gibeah, Saul standing on the side of a hill like some great king. And he's looking over the Philistines. How are we going to attack them? Are they going to attack us? And all of a sudden, the Philistines are scared to death. And Saul says, surely they they must have heard about the newspapers around here, how great a king I am. They're scared to death. Notice they looked and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. And folks from the high places and mountains, they were overlooking the battle. And and Saul said to the people who were with him, count and see who has gone from us. He's in no control here. Has no control over the battle. And they looked and they counted and behold, the only, this is the point, the only people they couldn't find were Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they're thinking, surely not just one guy and his armor bearer. And so Saul says, oh, we forgot. We're in war. They're fleeing. Now it's time for me to get get in on this. They're scared of us. They're, They're running from us. 
I'm, I'm ready to go to battle now. Oh, one thing I forgot. W- would y'all go back into that tent and, and get that priest and tell him to bring the ark of God here? For the ark, which actually should be translated ephod, it was just what the priest wore, it went with them all the time in battle. Saul's saying, if we're going to battle, get the priest. But notice this. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Saul says, oh, we're winning. Let's go to battle. Oh, first of all, let me get the priest. Oh, come on, you've got to go to battle with me? Oh, there's not even a need for us anymore. Well, just forget it. They don't even need me in battle. They don't even need our religion. They, they don't need the priest. And notice verse 20. Then Saul and all the people who were with him, they rallied. And, and as, as the Philistines began to run, Saul runs in without the priest here. And behold, every Philistine sword and against his fellow, there was a great confusion. So even when Saul goes to battle, it's not that Saul begins to kill people. He begins to slaughter the enemy. Notice how, how they win. There's confusion. Who's the only one that could do that? The Lord. And so over and over in the last two chapters, Saul is trying to assert control, but he's always late to the game. He, he's trying to step in and do something, but he doesn't know what to do. He's incompetent as a warrior king. And, and even when he goes to battle... It's God who is confusing the enemy, not Saul. He's doing nothing here. And now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, they had gone up into the camp. Even they turned with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into battle. So what's going on? They're hiding in caves. They hear, oh, we're winning. The Philistines are fleeing. Hey, guys, you know, get, your, get your staff and let's go chase some Philistines. Guys that had sworn their allegiance to the Philistines had betrayed Israel. Now, all of a sudden, they're re-upping for battle. But notice who does this, verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. And the battle passed beyond Beth-haven. There is the pushing of the enemy of God out of Israel. But the point in all this is Israel has a king who can't fight his own battles. It is supposed to be absolutely hilarious when you look at Saul. That he is this figurehead king who is so incompetent. He doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing. Supposed to be going to battle. He's not there. Oh, now we're winning. Let's go to battle. He can't fight his own battles. It's Jonathan who's fighting his battles. One guy. It's the Lord who's fighting his battles. And and it's good news for us. It's good news for the one here today who would say, who would look at Saul and say, that's me. One of the most horrific Bible readings you could have today would be to read these two chapters and say, I'm Jonathan. You're not Jonathan. You're Saul. You're incompetent. 
You think you're king. You don't know how to fight the battle. You don't know what to do and when. You identify with Saul today. But I have good news for you. There's a king who can fight his own battles. And you know what he's done for Saul's? He says, I'll fight your battle for you. That's what the Lord says for the people of Israel. You have this weird uh, king who's in place and doesn't even know how this works. Don't worry, I'll fight for you. And the Lord saved Israel. Some of you today are trying to fight your own battles. You, you look in the mirror and you're trying to fight your own battle. And the greatest thing you could do today is say, I can't. You, you look at sin in your life. <clears throat> you look who you, were, who you were and who you are in the mirror. You say, I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I'm doing this. And today you think, you think you should fight your battle yourself. I, I need to read my Bible more. I need to pray more. I, I need to be a nicer person. I, I need to, you've got this list of things that, that you think if I just do these things and check these things off a list, then I can fight this battle. I, I can fight the battle of my, and you can't. You can't. I mean, what that's going to do is pump you up full of self-righteousness. More pride in yourself, just like Saul. Look who I am. You're not even going to battle. And it's going to give you more anxiety. The more you try to do for God, in and of yourself, without God, all it does is make you feel more and more guilty. All it does is give you more and more anxiety, and it's proof you can't fight your battle. You're racked with worry, but there is a king who is covered in blood on a cross. There is a king who lived a perfect life in your place. There is a king who does not say, you got yourself into this, you go fight your own battle. No, he fought your battle for you, Golgotha. Some of you are here today, and you fear death. You're scared of it. You go to your friends from high school, 40 years later, funeral, and you stand around and you look at a box with your friend's body in it. And you say, who's next? Who's next? And you're scared to death. You're scared of death. Some of you feel that tension. Moms, your, your kids are, are graduating high school. Your kids are going off to college. Your kids are getting married. And, and, and you feel in your gut Oh, I can't stop this. Time is ticking away. Death is staring you down. The end of this life is coming, and you're trying to fight the battle. You're flipping through Google Photos, trying to remember a day gone by. Hair color, pills, health insurance, retirement. You can't slow it down, and you can't stop it. You can't fight that battle. But there is one who has crawled out of a cave in a first century coffin outside of Jerusalem who says you don't have to turn back time because your best days are in the life to come. And when you trust in him, he says, I have fought the battle for death for you. I'm not going to shove you in to that coffin to fight that battle yourself. No, I fought it for you. He is raised from the dead. And when you think about the gospel in these ways, Jesus has fought my battle. Jesus is my victory. You know what it does? You get fired up and you chase the enemy. What's Israel doing? The enemy's going down and they're charging to battle. 
I can't help but get to a few chapters later when Goliath's head is on a platter. And what does Israel do? They begin to charge after the Philistines. The more and more you think about Jesus as victory over your sin, victory over your death, you know what you're going to do? You're going to charge the enemy with the sword of the Spirit. And you're going to go out and you're going to tell the forces of darkness, you've already been defeated. Satan, you have no power. And you're going to have conversations with people and you're going to say, Jesus is king. You're going to sit around your dinner table with people who, who shouldn't even be there. And you're going to say, we're so different, but I invited you into my home to tell you Jesus is king. And you're going to turn to Satan and the forces of darkness and you're going to say, you've already been defeated. That's what, where evangelism comes from. Knowing the enemies have already been defeated. You have nothing to fear. Jesus isn't the man who says to his bride, fight your own battles. You got yourself into this. No, he's the warrior who climbed up the hill called Calvary. He has presented himself to the enemy in blood and gore. He crawled from a cave in the ground. He's back from the dead and he says, let's go. Richmond to the ends of the earth. Let's fight the enemy. The Lord is with us. We have nothing to lose. He fights our battles. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to preach your word today. Thank you for the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to pray in Jesus' name today. Thank you for the opportunity to sing about Jesus today. God, Jesus is a good king who has fought the battle for wicked kings like me, who act like Saul, who want our name and lights, who want to use you for ourselves, who are scared, who are passive, who try to protect ourselves in battle. God, Jesus fights for us. And God, I pray in these moments we would look to Jesus, look to Jesus as our king. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to respond to the Word of God um, by having a soft heart to the Word of God. We say this every week. uh, You are responding, but your heart is becoming hard or it's becoming soft to the Word of God. You're beginning to make decisions about what you're going to do next. You're beginning to make decisions about your problems. You're beginning to make decisions about your anxieties. You're beginning to make decisions about your relationships. You're thinking through those things right now. And the question is, will you think through them in light of Jesus? And that will say everything about your heart. Will you be one after God's own heart and make Jesus king of your heart in these moments and say, it's all about Jesus. Maybe you've never believed in Jesus. Maybe you've never followed Jesus in salvation. We would love nothing more than to tell you about Jesus today. We would love to tell you how you can have your sins forgiven, how you can have the promise that your coffin will be split wide open one day when Jesus comes back. We would love to tell you about that today. Maybe you just want to pray with somebody. Maybe you don't even know. You don't even know where to start. You don't... You don't understand what's going on in your life. You don't understand this Jesus thing, and you just need somebody to talk to. You can talk to someone where you're seated. There'll be folks up here who would love to talk with you during this time and after the service. Maybe you just want to get on your knees in front of your chair. Maybe you want to come up here and pray. Maybe you want to go to a friend and pray with them. But we must respond to the Word of God. These moments will shape the rest of your week. 
They will shape the rest of your week. Will you carry the word of God and the gospel with you? Or will you leave it here? That's the question. Respond to the word of God as Clay continues to lead us.